Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, host of the Black Hall Studios podcast from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm an entrepreneur, mostly by necessity because I have massive authority issues, and also by constitution as the entrepreneurial life is filled with things I love, freedom, adventure, creativity, and imagination. When I began this leg of my journey into the entertainment industry, you may find it interesting to know that my background before this was all commercial real estate. And then I built Black Hall Studios as a specialty real estate project for production giants like Disney, Sony, Warner Brothers, and Universal to have a place to apply their skilled craft of production. I'm from Los Angeles, but I moved to Atlanta six years ago. I've done business all over the world, and I know a few places with the dynamism of Atlanta. It's a world-class city with a huge economic future as a center of commerce for a global economy. On this podcast, we get local and global and talk to people who are inspirational, sensational, sometimes motivational, but at all times somehow tied to the ecosystem that is the culture and business of entertainment as it relates to Black Hall Studios. Today on the podcast, it's a privilege to speak with Milton Little, president of the United Way of Greater Atlanta. In this challenging time, organizations like the United Way work overtime to provide assistance to those in need. In addition to being a health crisis, for many in our communities, it's also a financial crisis. Before we start the conversation, I'd like to ask Black Hall Studios podcast listeners to support the efforts of the United Way to the Greater Atlanta COVID-19 Response and Recovery Fund by making a donation. Go to my Instagram page, ryan.millsap, and click on the link secure.givelively.org. Your contribution will provide immediate support for emergency assistance, health services, and critical needs like childcare and food. I know we have some amazing listeners, so thank you in advance for your generous support. Milton Little joined the United Way in 2007 and has grown it into the largest chapter in the United States. This Morehouse man traces his beginnings and community involvement to his college days here in Atlanta and some sage advice even earlier from his mom as a young man growing up in New York. Got a great conversation on tap with a dynamic community leader in Milton Little, coming up on the Black Hall Studios podcast. Hi, this is Ryan Millsab. This is the Black Hall podcast. We are uh, broadcasting remote. Everybody is in quarantine. Today, we're fortunate to have the CEO of the Atlanta United Way, Milton Little. Milton, welcome to the Black Hall podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate taking the time. Where are you quarantining? I am in my house in uh, in Midtown Atlanta, and uh, you know the only thing idyllic about it is I get to see the trees begin to uh, have leaves on them. Otherwise, uh, I'd rather be in the office doing the work. Well, we appreciate you running the United Way Atlanta from your home. Uh, I know you guys. This is a busy time. Tell us a little bit about uh, what the response has been to COVID and uh, how you guys are facing the coronavirus and 
and, and who's started to come alongside and what you guys are, are doing to tackle it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, this United Way has been in Atlanta since 1905, and it actually began in the height of an ice storm in 1905. So we're used to dealing with uh, significant community challenges. As the COVID pandemic and its impacts became um, increasingly clear uh, here in Atlanta, we partnered with the Community Foundation of Greater, for Greater Atlanta, one of our long-term uh, partners, and created Greater Atlanta COVID-19 Response Refund. Our two organizations are premier fundraising and uh, and partnering organizations. It didn't make sense for us to compete um, for donor support for COVID response when we could join our forces, and that's what we've done. Prioritizing families that live in communities of low and very low child well-being, seniors, families with children receiving free and reduced lunch, families in need of child care, uh, hourly workers and frontline workers most impacted by the pandemic. Those became our priority targets. And we were able to receive uh, at the beginning a uh, $5 million grant from the Coca-Cola company, a $5 million grant from the Robert Woodruff Foundation. And that got us off and running. And so far we've raised close to $21 million and uh, have distributed about uh, five, $4 million worth of grants. Are you guys focusing on uh, shelter, food? I mean, what are you finding to be or what are you hearing to be the biggest needs right now? Right now, what we are hearing are um, the following. Uh, emergency financial assistance with uh, people having been furloughed from their jobs or having had their hours cut pretty significantly or finding themselves in a desperate need of uh, financial help to pay bills and to, to just make ends meet. And we're also seeing a tremendous amount of, uh, of need in the area of food assistance. Um, food banks are, are being um, tapped uh, and challenged to uh, be able to provide uh, food because their supplies uh, are uh, difficult to come by because the surplus food that they've always been getting from supermarkets and others is now longer, no longer surplus. Those supermarkets are having bare shelves themselves. And so um, food and uh, financial assistance seem to be the two most uh, pressing needs of residents in greater Atlanta. How are you finding that people are seeking that out? Like if somebody needed financial assistance, where are they turning and how are you guys getting money to those organizations and how are those organizations determining uh, who who to help and, and how to help? First and foremost, uh, back in the 90s, United Way created something called 211, which is an information and referral uh, system that allows people all across greater Atlanta to call or contact 211, dial that simple number, and state what your needs are. And then we go through a database and find agencies near the zip code where you live that can provide the assistance that you're looking for. So we're seeing um, lots and lots and lots of people contacting United Way 211, and we're able to direct them to food banks and, and other organizations that provide emergency assistance. They're also going to those agencies themselves. People know how to find an agency like Salvation Army or St. Vincent de Paul, and those agencies do what they can 
to uh, provide uh, support. And those are the organizations we know well, and those are the ones that we have been targeting for uh, funds from the response fund uh, to be able to continue to meet the needs of those who come to their doors. Well, you know, Americans historically aren't as accustomed to turning to the government for help. Americans have have a long tradition of helping each other with the United Way as, as a centerpiece of, of that kind of work. For people that are listening, what would you encourage people to be thinking about in ways that they can help? You know, obviously the government's trying to do a lot and, and trying to figure out how to get money into people's hands and, and save this economy in the midst of a pandemic. But what, what can people that you, in, you know, in, in Atlanta, let's say, what can people in Atlanta be doing to help one another from your perspective? Sure. Um, and, and the government is planning to do a lot, but it's going to take some time for the resources that the government is promising to get in the hands of people. I mean, if you just look at the news, you'll see what uh, they expect to be uh, the time lag between the decision to get that money out uh, and when it'll actually get in somebody's hands. And so there are tremendous needs today that are not going to be addressed by government support that's coming weeks from now. So we would ask our neighbors uh, and friends and family uh, to contact United Way, uh, contact the Community Foundation, and support the COVID uh, response fund. You don't have to be a, a rich philanthropist to make a difference. Uh, all you need to do is be willing to provide support of any level, and that amount is going to make a world of difference uh, in the hands of the people who need it, and the people who are calling the agencies and calling United Way uh, for help. So we just ask people, uh, to be as generous as they can, even in the midst of concerns about their own circumstance. Uh, every little bit helps uh, to save uh, this community. When the day-to-day of charitable infrastructure is happening, you're not dealing with crisis, right? You're dealing with a lot of administration. You're dealing with building infrastructure. But you're building all of that four times like this, you know, not just for the day-to-day. Tell me a little bit about the United Way's history with crisis. I know you mentioned that the Atlanta United Way was born out of an ice storm. Yes, sir. Every day there's a crisis. I mean, it's not that it can be uh, an ice storm or a, a disease pandemic, but every day there are people across greater Atlanta who've lost uh, a job, um, who are searching for childcare, who are searching for assistance for their elder um uh, family members because they don't know where to turn. And so the crisis can be one of, of global proportion. It could be one that just rocks an individual and a family. Uh, the infrastructure that, that we help to support across the region is one that deals with crises um, big uh, and uh, and small. But this United Way has been on the forefront of, of a number of responses, Hurricane Katrina, uh, was one when thousands and thousands of people left New Orleans and went to cities like Dallas and Houston and, and Atlanta uh, and resettled. And, and how do you help all of those people resettle? How do you help them find housing? How do you help them find jobs? How do you help them get themselves secure here in Atlanta uh, with the hope that when they are ready to go back, they can go back or they may simply want to stay in Atlanta? Uh, the 2008 recession, which is probably the closest parallel to what we face today, thousands of people lost their jobs, thousands of people uh, were at risk of losing their homes, being evicted from apartments, 
uh, didn't know where to turn for food because they were suddenly unemployed. United Way worked with local communities and funders to create the critical needs campaign. And then we worked with the state to create something called Fresh Start that enabled United Way of Greater Atlanta to deploy about $22 million across the state, resources that help with mortgage foreclosure and food assistance and those kinds of things. When the downtown uh, tornado hit in 2008, uh, we helped to stand up a community response uh, to those issues. And so on, uh, on days when there are huge issues like what we're facing, or on days when it's just a family calling because they don't know where to turn, uh, that's the business United Way's in. I love the distinction you made about uh, the local crisis, the individual crisis. It shows me what uh, an empathetic and uh, compassionate person you are. Share with me a little about your, you know, your journey to become the CEO of the United Way, your journey in nonprofits, your journey in wanting to uh, help other people in this way. I mean, I bet, I bet you have a, an interesting background, an interesting story that led you to this place. Well, th- thanks for asking. Um, and it's a background that had uh, uh, tentacles in the for-profit world, in the nonprofit world, in, in government. And so, you know, I'm not a lifelong uh, United Way uh, person, nor uh, really a lifelong nonprofit person. But I tell the story about uh, being a, a young person and, and my mother and father who were very involved in civil rights uh, issues uh, in the North. I grew up in New York. My mother sat me down one day and she said, no matter what you do in life, son, um, no matter what your profession, find a way to help somebody. Uh, And that simple conversation became the guide for the professional decisions that I would make uh, throughout my life. Uh, And so um, I had a career in public policy, and I worked for Ed Koch when he was mayor of New York, and I did a lot of work uh, in corporate philanthropy at AT AT&T and Lucent Technologies, and and came upon uh, United Way as a volunteer in New York, and then ultimately as a professional in the CEO ranks in Boston, and then came to Atlanta in 2007. So I've been here in Atlanta. Uh, a while, and it's become the largest United Way in the country by uh, annual revenue and impact. What was your educational background? You were up in New York. Did you stay in New York for college? Well, tell me some of that story. So I left uh, I left New York and uh, came to Atlanta, actually. I came to Morehouse College, uh, which uh, I think added to uh, the lesson from my mother because uh, – one of the things that you learn when you get to Morehouse is your responsibility to give back and, and to be a, a good uh, community citizen as well as uh, somebody impactful in your career. And so that added to the, the urgency of, of the focus that, uh, that I was bringing to what I wanted to do in life. And then I went back to New York to graduate school and, um, and spent the bulk of my career in New York and, and uh, and working nationally for national organizations. With the United Way, it gave me a chance to to live and work in a community and, and be responsible for seeing the impact of, of the work in ways that you don't see when you work for a national organization. You get to fly in, you get to run your mouth, and then you fly back home. 
and you don't know whether anything you did or said has any lasting value. Well, you get to see the value every day. I mean, you're so deeply integrated into the fabric of the, the society and the culture of Atlanta. How have you developed those relationships over the years and helped bring so much uh, fluid ecosystem to the way that Atlanta's business community works together? Well, one of the things that I learned early on is that uh, is the power of relationships. I mean, it's trite to say that no one gets anything done by themselves, but it is an absolute uh, truism. Uh, and in this job, the, one of the best things about this job is that you find people at their best. In this job, I get to pe- I get to talk to people about giving and, and giving back and, and making a difference. Gives them a chance to be their best self. Uh, you know, I'm not coming selling anything other than, uh, as a mentor of mine uh, once said, the only thing I'm selling is uh, is an easy way for you to get to heaven. So, uh, <laughs> so good you know, you bring that approach, and everybody wants to get to heaven. And so uh, yeah. if you can give and give back and be generous and thoughtful and open up your networks to others who feel the same compassion that you do, um, you know, if that's not going to get you to heaven, I don't know what will. Mm. I love that. That makes me think of a, an old Emily Dickinson poem. You know the poem where she says, um, well, I just blanked actually on the on the beginning of the poem. But she she talks about how some people are trying to get to heaven at last, but she's going all along. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to get that mm-hmm, poem mm-hmm. and and um, and I'll get it over to you after this podcast. I think. Okay. Like Great. So, what have been some of the things that have been encouraging to you in the the Atlanta response to this pandemic? What things have been surprisingly good? Sometimes in crisis, that's when we learn the most about the people that are all around us. And sometimes we're we're amazingly surprised at what we find out about their character, good and bad. But tell me about some of the things you've seen in Atlanta so far that have been encouraging to you. Number one, uh, the amount of trust and confidence that people have in the United Way of Greater Atlanta and the Community Foundation and the excitement that they have for our two organizations coming together uh, to help bring um, relief. Uh, across the region, um, that is that that's been uh, exciting. Uh, the fact that the fund is not even three weeks old and it was able to amass twenty-one million dollars in a very short period of time with very very generous gifts from companies and and just yesterday uh, we received a one million dollar gift from the Michael Klum from Argonne Capital. And, who hopes that his uh, individual effort will uh, help to uh, encourage other people of, of means to, to follow suit. When you see examples of, of generosity from foundations and individuals and companies, you know, you just can't help but be uh, be encouraged and you can't help but feel good that, uh, in my case, I've run an organization that has continued to uh, receive the faith and confidence and trust of people and the expectation that in circumstances like this we are going to play a leadership role and so uh, you can't help but feel good by all of that i can see that happening all around me i've i've been really encouraged by seeing my friends all reaching out to each other checking in on each other 
you know, I've, I've watched people be very selfless, which, it, you know, I, I find to be surprising. You know, we're living in a capitalist country and, and watching capitalist principles at work, oftentimes it's easy to feel like everyone is selfish until mm-hmm. you get a crisis. And then you start to realize that in a crisis, people's hearts are socialists. You know, they want to take care of the whole. They want to take care of each other. They want to take care of their community. Now, in America, we may not want that mandated, right? That's always a political question. And sometimes it has economic consequences because you don't want to stifle innovation. But wow, is it encouraging to see the socialist spirit in times of crisis. Like, I've I've just been moved by that. I agree uh, entirely. And what's unique about this is the fact that it's revealing how interdependent we are because at at the very core of the solution to how we're going to get past this is my having to rely on you that you are going to wash your hands and take precautions that will enable me to be safe and you have to rely on the fact that I'm going to do the same and this is not this is not an us and them or 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 we against uh, whoever this is this is one of only everyone working together will get us through this and that i think is what helps to to animate the kind of uh spirit that you were just describing where did you get this kind of spiritual imagination you know what i mean by that question <laughs> yeah you know it's it's my the people in Atlanta who have heard me talk about this have heard me say my uh, my mother's father was a Baptist preacher. So uh, there's a little bit of that. I went to an Episcopalian high school. I went to a Baptist college. You know, my mother really thought I was going to be a priest when I grew up. So, you know, there there is a spiritual and, and sort of religious stream that sort of runs um, through me. But... I also just uh, approach the, the the work from the standpoint of you know how do you how do you appeal to that that part of goodness that I believe exists in everyone and I think people are searching for purpose and for meaning and charitable giving and, and responding to crises like these really helps to to fuel that sense of purpose and and, and meaning and and that's that's the sort of philosophy that guides you know the work I do in this charitable sector. You know what you are talking about is that family dynamic that in many ways gives you exposure to the possibility of a spiritual world, and then at some point that has to take hold, and you have to take responsibility for your spiritual imagination in your own way and it sounds sure. like you did that. In college, is that fair? Is that is that when it felt like it really got rooted and you started to say, I'm going to take responsibility for making a world into the world that I want it to be, that I hope it to be? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it, it did. It, it guided me there because I, I, I knew that I wanted to pursue as a career uh, public policy. Because I wanted to learn how the how the machines of, of public policy work to create or to uh, undermine fairness and equity and opportunity, 
that you know I could I could be in a small agency and running programs, but I needed to know what the levers of, of power and influence were, and, and so yeah, all of that sort of got solidified when I was an undergrad in college. One of the things I'm observing in this crisis is that we just weren't ready for this as a society. We didn't have any pandemic plan, whether that was medical right. or economic, and so. We're learning as we go. I have a lot of grace for that, you know, because this is how change happens is we encounter things that we didn't realize were problems or we encounter weaknesses that we didn't know we had. But in order to to learn from this kind of stuff, we have to be willing to have very candid feedback. We have to be, be willing to look at ourselves very clearly. It's kind of like athletes watching game film, right? When you screw up on film, there's nowhere to hide. Coach right. just rewinds it and plays it back and rewinds it and plays it back and rewinds until he says, you see what you did wrong there? And when you see what you did wrong, you got to admit it. And then when you go out on the field, he's going to remind you all the things you did wrong on that film. He's going to make you work on all the things you did wrong so that next time, hopefully you don't make those same mistakes. And if you have the right kind of mentality, you're going to get better. Mm-hmm. I say that as a preface, as we're working together to get better and I know you, you know, I know the position that you're in. Sometimes it's hard to be candid because there's a lot of personalities in play and a lot of institutions in play. But yet, kind of setting that aside, where are you watching as we, you know, as we're going through this crisis? Where can we get better? Where are we falling down together? Where, where can we do a better job the next time? Well, I, I would say, number one, we need to pay more attention to prevention. We are a great nation for responding to things when situations crater, but we're not as uh, effective in working together to prevent problems from happening in the first place. We don't do enough around early education uh, to make sure that every child can graduate from high school and get to whatever is next skilled. We're not doing as much with respect to pandemic um, awareness. I mean, the reality is not all of this was a surprise, but there's not the, uh, you know, you don't get, you don't get as many medals for stopping something from ever happening uh, as you get from fixing it after it blows up. And that is probably the, if if there's a lesson that I hope we learn, that's one of them. And the second is that we've got to get back to a moment where facts are facts and truth is truth. And until we again begin to agree on some underlying truths, I think we're going to go down a path in which uh, we're going to continue to see something and not believe that the sky's blue or water's wet. And, and if we don't get to, to agree on those underlying premises, then we're not going to be able to, to do the big things that we need when collective action is absolutely required. Well, no relationships are sustainable without truth. That it's is, just the fundamental is, that is, building yeah, block. Correct, correct. And I think we've got to just get back to building and strengthening those relationships and building a sense of, of community. We've seen over uh, the last number of years that, that you know, that this sense of community is not what it appeared to be 
before, and we've mm. got to get back to to doing this. You know, the the united and the united way is not about being united when something is broken. It's about you know only everyone working together it helps to make a community strong and prosperous under all circumstances. There's an area of philosophy called virtue ethics. It spends all its time trying to understand what ethical traits, what what traits in a human being can lead a human being to happiness. What do you think the virtues are? Right? If you were talking to a young man, he's young man just entered Morehouse. He comes to you, he says, Right. Mr. Little, tell me, what virtues do I need to cultivate as a man in order to find happiness? Well, I'd say uh, most of the time uh, when a a young man enters Morehouse, he's going to have that conversation anyway because that's just part of the the ethos. But uh, I'd say it's it's compassion, it's it's empathy, uh, it's a sense of fairness, and and equity is, 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 uh, is a piece of that. And I think it's selflessness. Uh, we can be successful uh, in any profession if we uh, embrace those. And the idea that we've got we've to be in it only for ourselves and only for our families and, and grab everything we can, I, I just have not subscribed to that as the key to happiness and key to, key to success. You, you, no one has ever gone broke because they gave uh, their heart away. Paint me a picture. Cast me a vision. Atlanta over the next five years, what are some of the things you would love to see? We, we are at, at United Way dealing with um, a, a truth that um, has been uh, the guiding force for our work over the last couple of years, and that is Unfortunately, poor children in Atlanta have the lowest rate of social or economic mobility uh, in the country. If you're born poor, the story in Atlanta is you're going to die poor. Uh, Only 4.5% of poor children ever make it from the bottom income quartile at birth to the top. And so what I'd like to see over the next five years is our um, fixing that because Having that many children consigned to poverty throughout their lives undermines the economic progress of the entire region. We've got employers on one hand who are saying they can't find people, and we've got people who are never going to get out of uh, the circumstance from which they were born. And so the fix is there. How do we make sure that more people born in Atlanta uh, are educated and skilled and can become full participants in the labor force. And that's the easiest thing we can do to solve the labor challenges that we, that employees were facing before this pandemic, which I'm sure they will face once this pandemic's over. Uh, and if we do that, this community is going to thrive in ways that, uh, that it never imagined possible. And that, again, is because we allowed everybody to be a participant. Uh, in the social and economic transactions that you and I and, and many of your listeners take uh, for granted every day. Mm. Milton, we are out of time, but I so appreciate your leadership, not only in this time of corona crisis, but as you've so 
wonderfully pointed out to me and what I'm taking with me from this podcast. Thank you for your leadership in the day-to-day crises that all these people in Atlanta face, all the ways that you gather resources and deploy them to the people on the ground, uh, distributing those resources. Thank you for your leadership uh, in in nobility and, and virtue. I can tell that you've had a big impact on a lot of people's lives, and we really appreciate you being on the Black Hall podcast. Well, thank you for uh, thanks for having me, and, and and thanks to your listeners, and and thanks to the people of Atlanta who, uh, time and time again, uh, step forward to support United Way and allow us to do the work that we do. I appreciate it. I'm going to leave you with that Emily Dickinson poem that the producers hunted down for me, and I'm going to just read okay. it to you. I think you're going to like it. It's it's Emily Dickinson's two three six. Some keep the Sabbath. It goes like this: Some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home with a bubbling for a chorister and an orchard for a dome. Some keep the Sabbath in surplus. I just wear my wings. And instead of tolling the bell for church, our little sexton sings. God preaches, a noted clergyman, and the sermon is never long. So instead of getting to heaven at last, I'm going all along. I got Isn't it. That fantastic. God, I love that, that poem. That, that. All right. We'll hold on to that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Milton. Have a great day. Stay safe Thank out you. there. You too. All right, you too. All right, Bye now. Bye-bye. I'll leave you guys with thoughts, which are reflections that I write on Instagram. Coronavirus can only win if extroverts can't stay in. I'm Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Studios Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios Podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Black Hall Studios.